and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and this is my co-host Morgan. Hello. Uh, this week we're going to talk about The Mummy, 1999 version. It stars Brendan Fraser as the main character, Rick O'Connell, who's a treasure hunter type American adventurer guy. Rachel Weiss as Evie, the other lead, who is an archaeologist, and uh, various others as people who are in Egypt um, in the kind of early 20th century heyday of Egyptian archaeology from American and uh, kind of US colonialist treasure hunter types. And it's this sort of Errol Flynn, Indiana Jones adventure story where they unintentionally awaken the tomb of an undead mummy and his girlfriend, another undead mummy, who obviously want to bring about the apocalypse and vengeance on everyone. And it's got these kind of themes of, you probably shouldn't steal from a tomb, while also starring people who kind of for a living steal from tombs. And it's extremely fun. It's a cult favourite, and it was remade this year by Tom Cruise. We've not seen the remake, but it looks horrible and humourless. Yes, I think that that is a fair description based on all the marketing material we have seen and also all the reviews it's sort of unfair to talk about films you haven't seen, but in this case, I don't feel that bad. Yeah, I mean, about it. the so 1999 Mummy has such a cult following. I feel like Morgan and I are the only millennials on Tumblr who have not memorized this film. We watched it together a couple of weeks ago, and she hadn't seen it. I'm pretty sure I hadn't seen it. I recognized some clips, but basically we were watching it for the first time, and we can confirm that even if you watch it as an adult, it is amazing. This film is so good. So it's not pure childhood nostalgia, everyone. Yeah, I went in definitely game to see it, but fairly sure I was only going to enjoy it ironically, if at all. It's not the kind of thing that I always enjoy, although really what kind of thing is there like The Mummy these days? And I thought it was so much fun. It's such a sort of campy delight. And what we immediately started saying within probably five minutes of it being on, if not sooner, was this is such an old Hollywood movie. It so strongly evokes sort of like, I don't know, I guess 50s would be the era. Yeah, it's it's um, honestly like watching, because when you watch kind of different movies that are set during previous historical time periods, like, you know, Greece was not made in the 50s, but it's kind of the 80s version of the 50s. And this is like they're making the 50s version of the like 1910s or whatever it's set. Yes. Because even, I feel it was like even Rachel Weisz's makeup, her eyebrows were on in a certain way that wasn't contemporary to the late 90s. And the way, the kind of the screwball dialogue is very evocative of that kind of golden age Hollywood thing. And they've got this sweeping orchestral score that's really melodramatic. And it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like it comes from the 90s. The only thing about this movie that's 90s is Brendan Fraser's haircut because he's got like the classic <laughs> kind of floppy fringe Leonardo DiCaprio boy band hair. Which is glorious. It is wonderful. Great choice. He looks great. But yes, it, that is very specifically of its time and the rest isn't so much. It feels, this, it feels very specifically like a genre of movie that I'm not that familiar with but I'm familiar enough with that it felt familiar to me which is sort of right after Hollywood had, or right when Hollywood had moved out of only shooting things on studio lots. So in the 30s and 40s, most of those Hollywood movies, if not all of them, are all on studios, even when they're supposed to be taking place somewhere like the Middle East. And obviously also most of the stuff is in black and white. And this movie, of course, is in color and takes place in Egypt. And 
there's a point somewhere in the sort of late 40s and particularly early 50s where things start to get shot more on location, although obviously not exclusively on location. And these kind of foreign epics that are kind of, you know, exotic and whatever start getting made a lot more. And the sort of purity and simplicity of the emotion of this and the sort of gung-ho nostalgia of it felt so much like that time to me in a way that was really pleasurable, although not without its problems, as we will discuss later. Um, and it was fascinating to me that they were, had decided to remake it because the, it felt like the people who made the original totally were going for that and understood what they were doing. Like, I don't think it was an accident at all. And that's not the kind of thing that big Hollywood films tend to do anymore. I mean, it's almost like the first Captain America movie, right? Yes. Except slightly less yeah. intense, because when I see people talking about The Mummy, which is absolutely ubiquitous in my social media circles for some reason, because everyone loves it, and Evie especially, I don't really see people talking about it in terms of all this like kind of nostalgic aesthetic. And even though it's not as noticeable as with Captain America, they're so clearly going for this sort of painted backdrop background kind of thing. Yeah, and... But what's even more unusual about it is that I really like the first Captain America. And one of the things I like about it is that it does feel more visually distinct than a lot of the other Marvel movies. Although then once the action scenes start happening more in the last third of the movie or so, it gets much less visually interesting for me. The last, I would say third or so, but maybe half of the mummy is also very heavy on action. And some of it is fun and some of it is not as interesting, I think. But Captain America is within a very familiar genre to contemporary viewers, which is the superhero movie. Although when it came out, it wasn't as the market wasn't as saturated with those types of films, but it was still, you know, a familiar thing. And obviously I wasn't watching all of these films in 1999 when the mummy came out, but it feels to me, like, even though it's not doing something massively original, because it is kind of a pastiche of this older stuff, that it's not so much commenting on other things that are being made, that were being made at that time, and then bringing something in from the past so much as just being like, we're gonna fucking make a movie that looks like it's from 1955, and we're gonna go for it. I mean, it's while it's, having the exactly, action sequences. Yeah, it's exactly what the director wanted. Because after we watched the movie, we were kind of looking him up, like, how on earth did this happen? And basically, the studio wanted to make a mummy remake because it's a recognizable property, and they spent the whole of the 90s kind of juggling the concept of a mummy movie around between various horror and blockbuster directors. Then the eventual director, Stephen Sommers, was basically like, the one thing I really want to do, my grand passion is I want to do a completely straightforward, um, like pure, nostalgic kind of pastiche movie, which is exactly what he did. And um, um, you haven't seen Indiana Jones, right? No, amazingly. Yeah. Future podcast yeah. topic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we're definitely going to see Indiana Jones at some point, but this is this is like the only Indiana Jones ripoff that works within the exact framework of Indiana Jones which is like a 1940s movie made in the 80s um, and it's also kind of playing off all these old cheesy blockbuster tropes but it doesn't feel like a ripoff because you know Tomb Raider, the video games and the movie both 
take a lot from Indiana Jones. There's like, you know, there's a scene where someone's running away from a giant boulder and that sort of thing. And it's like, you've literally just taken the same story. But with The Mummy, they've taken the same subgenre, which is a cheesy old Hollywood blockbuster adventure rom-com and put it in the past and it doesn't seem identical. And I really, really like Brendan Fraser's main character, Rick O'Connell, who has a perfect name, by the way. Rick O'Connell, it's literally just like, yeah, you've just given him... You've given him the ultimate like historical <laughs> historical action hero name. It's like when you watch Sahara, which I have multiple times because I'm a shameful person. That stars uh, Matthew McConaughey as a treasure hunter named Dirk Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> Just a side note to the audience. This is very unlikely, but um, those novels written by Clive Cussler, he has sold so many books that I believe he owns an aircraft hangar full of collectible antique cars. Um, never read a Clive Cussler book. Nothing has ever been worse than Clive Cussler's writing. It's just like one of those books where it's like Dirk Pitt straddled his motorcycle and then there's like an, a page of describing the motorcycle in like metaphorical terms of women's bodies and you're like, why? Why have I done this? <laughs> um, but I digress. <laughs> Brandon Fraser as the protagonist of this movie is basically the opposite of the Indiana Jones role, which is why it works so well instead of overlapping because he is a lovely rom-com lead like he does have that thing where he's introduced as a bit of a bad boy when they first find him he's in jail and he's stolen this artifact that's essential for getting into uh, the place where the mummy and the mummy's treasure are and um, Evie Carnahan uh, played by Rachel Weiss, is uh, an archaeologist who needs the artifact so they team up and it's kind of an unlikely partnership with her brother played by John Hanna as the comic relief he's like this dorky posh English useless man whose accent regularly slips into Scottish but we will not hold that against him (laughs) Um, but like they have this just this wonderful classic rom-com pairing and instead of it being like oh she's really uptight and he's like a cool laid-back rebel he instantly just really likes her as well it's like it's really it doesn't take long for him to warm to her and she's really fun and lovable and she's such an engaging character she's basically the kind of character that Hermione would be played as in a better adaptation of Harry Potter. I mean, I'm not wholly against Emma Watson's interpretation and the writing there, but she's a lot more kind of warm and characterful instead of purely just being like, here's an academic. Yes, I think that's a good observation slash comparison. And she is actually specifically a librarian, which is fun because she talks about it a lot. And she winds up going on this kind of big adventure and is very game for it. But she's simultaneously presented as very spunky and fun, but not like a cool girl who does things like go on adventures and tramp around all the time. She really wants to find an antique book. (laughs) Yes. And stories about like badass women who do do things like, you know, go on adventures all the time obviously can be really fun, but there's something kind of neat and novel about this one where she isn't like that, but is like, but I'm going to do it anyway and is really determined. It's like, yes, <laughs> great, bookish women. Any, She doesn't have any physical skills either. It's not like she's a huge badass. It's like she's just really determined and enthusiastic. And that is definitely a significant proportion of why so many women in their like 20s and 30s are still obsessed with this movie from like a formative stage. Because even us watching it for the first time, we were like, I love her. <laughs> She is amazing. And Rachel Weiss in general is great. Like, I think she's wonderful. She's super charming. And I love her plummy oh. accent in this. I think you told me that's basically what her accent is like in real life, but she has a wonderfully plummy English accent. Yes. And it's just, she's just really, really charming. 
And we immediately made the observation, I think, again, around five to ten minutes into the film, that it is so obviously a movie made for women. Whether or not they knew that they were doing that, that is the effect of what they made. Because of what you were just saying about Brendan Fraser being a rom-com lead, like, he's very masculine and attractive, but he basically is just, like, a chill guy who appreciates her qualities and doesn't condescend to her. I mean, occasionally he'll be like, I have to protect you or whatever, but it's not in the way that you often see that in annoying man films. And he's definitely presented as a, I don't know if sex object is exactly the... Well, he's, he's appealing, right? He's sweet and goofy and appealing, which is very different from... I mean, obviously we do still sometimes get movies with a sweet, goofy male lead, but right now the trend is very much for either kind of hyper-masculine, aggressive action heroes who are often quite repressed or man-child types. So either you're going for the kind of Scott Pilgrim versus the world dweeby nerd guy or a sort of Judd Apatow comedy movie person where it's like a stoner who inexplicably gets with a really hot woman. Um, And none of those are really geared towards those characters being viewed as romantic objects it's more like they are kind of pursuing people and then they you know get a love interest as a reward which is the opposite of this because they are very equally treated and I think that's one of the other things that kind of plays into the old Hollywood aspect because even though there are tons and tons of classic old Hollywood uh, rom-coms especially which are heinously sexist in a weird way the gender dynamics are more comforting to me um, in terms of the romances, because they, there's no kind of automatic mindset that the film is playing to men or is trying to teach women like a really specific trope about romance. I mean, obviously there are loads of movies that do that as well, but you know what I mean. Well, many, many, many people have made the observation that, um, well, obviously the, the height of the rom-com was the 30s. Uh, but many people have made the observation that roles for women specifically in that genre were absolutely better in the 30s and 40s yeah. than they have ever been since. For sure. And they got to talk more, definitely, but also be on an equal footing with men. As you say, not in every film at all, but it was a much more common thing to have these sort of brassy women. There's a real emphasis who, on wit. Yes, sort of the fast talk and the sort of put downs and that kind of thing. And there's some of that in that this movie. It's not exactly like that because it is an adventure story as opposed to a straight romantic comedy. But I think you're right in observing that dynamic in play to a certain extent, as opposed to her just being like helpless and wayfish and needing to be rescued all the time. There is some of that at the end because as you say, she's not, primarily like a physical force she's more intellectual and so needless to say put her in danger at the end but what's interesting about the general um arc of the film is that i think she's arguably more the main character than he is even though the marketing has always yeah i mean not that i remember the marketing but like you see the posters and stuff and he's definitely like the main character but in terms of the arc it's more it's her, her it is her she's the protagonist and he has equal screen time but he's sort of her helper like he's someone that she brings in to assist her and he doesn't change except that he falls in love with her 
But and not that she massively changes either. I mean, it's not a particularly deep psychological film. But she goes, she has this goal that she needs to achieve. And she sort of stretches herself out to achieve it, which is finding this, you know, object to this tomb, which of course leads to all kinds of chaos. And she achieves various stages of this goal and then also falls in love with this guy. And more things change for her over the course of the film than for him where he's doing the thing that he always does, which is go and robs a grave, which is his job. So um, one of the only things I found kind of frustrating about the movie is that then in the last act, it more becomes about what he's doing than what she's doing. And you're like, well, okay. I know that I, knew I guess this was you coming, have to punch some like comedy like, zombies, well, but whatever. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, I don't care about this as much. And I do think like the romance gets resolved very, very easily at the end because they spend so much of the last act doing the zombie thing. Like, they basically just, you know, this is a spoiler, but everyone listening to this has seen this movie because we're the last people on the earth who haven't, so it's fine. <laughs> um, like they they defeat the thing and then just like are like well now we're gonna make out and I thought well everyone who watching this film expects this but you never actually resolved this it's just now assumed but it's like, like it's fine <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that that could have possibly been slightly stronger but that is the interesting difference between or the thing to think about in terms of like what genre is this film right like if you think it's totally just an adventure movie then that doesn't matter as much but so much of it is more presented as a rom-com then that would have been more important and it would be interesting to hear what the people who made it have to say about that or like how much they were thinking about that and if they were really thinking about the romance stuff so much or the audience like in terms of gender like I just don't no, it's totally possible that they just did this by accident because men do that sometimes. I mean, or it's maybe part it was all of, planned. It's Who part knows? of the many reasons why the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise went downhill. I mean, obviously it outstayed its welcome and there's only so many movies you can make on that really basic premise. But the first one is a romance story. And, you know, Keira Knightley does get more screen time, I think, in the later movies, maybe after she became more famous. But the idea that the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise hinges on jack sparrow is just sheer madness <laughs> it's just yes. it's just no well and he is like johnny depp is very good in that first one yeah and he was a big thing yeah and, like, for that, sure for his sure his career revived because of that film but if he was the but, main character well this is my this is what i'm saying is that like it's a really good balance in that movie between this kind of weird zany humor that some people would find particularly appealing and the love story and the people who are most obsessed with that film were teenage girls for instance my friends i <laughs> saw that movie like four or five times in theaters i have seen that movie many many times and then to sort of shift it as you were saying is like well the whole mix of ingredients was what made this work but you have picked out the one that maybe was not the most important and just decided that and has it was certainly be not it. stood the test of time <laughs> no although they're still making money so what do we know i the suppose. reviews for the one that came out this year were astounding oh my god oh my god oh my god because the mummy the mummy got mixed reviews like the people 
people didn't like The Mummy, but it did financially well. It's one of these films where people just kind of went to it and then forgot about it, I think. But the response I saw from the 2017 Pirates of the Caribbean movie was just... I just I, I read a couple of reviews for it and they were both like this is like having your soul pulled out of your nostrils it's just un- it's unbearable <laughs> and you're watching everything through like a haze of really obvious computer generated like sky stuff uh well let's talk about the new mummy because I'm so fascinated by this I'm actually going to open the the box office mojo page because I am fascinated to see how what the performance actually was because I know it didn't do as badly as everyone thought, but it definitely did not do great. So one of the things about Tom Cruise is that he has a really, really big audience for any film outside the US. Yes. So even though he's really recognisable in the US, he's not someone who automatically gets a box office draw. But with this movie, I think that it maybe did really well overseas and in Europe. And all the advertising, especially in Europe, is literally just like Tom Cruise's in this film. Yes, I'm looking at, well, it, let's see. So the budget was $125 million and say double that for marketing and stuff, right? So 250 And the worldwide gross was 402 which is quite good, although probably not what they were hoping for because the domestic total was only $79 million, which is horrible. And it is, if you look at like certain foreign countries, for instance, it did pretty well in the UK, but like South Korea, Russia, Malaysia, France, Brazil, that's where a lot of that money was coming from. And that makes sense because I've read that before that he has done just a massive amount of work to cement himself as a brand in various foreign territories. Whereas in the US that hasn't worked so much. I think the Scientology thing yeah, is actually it's like hurt people him have been, a lot. Because he's got more of a tabloid presence. Yeah. But it was fascinating to me to watch the marketing stuff for that to begin with. I found it completely misguided, like before we'd seen this movie. But then particularly once we'd watched it, I was like, what were they thinking? And this isn't a remake of the Brendan Fraser Mummy. It is a remake of the original Mummy. But presumably very loosely because it's set in the present day. So basically they've taken the brand of the mummy and... Exactly. It's, you know, remake in in big air quotes. But obviously the association most people have with the mummy at this point is the 1995-99 film. And I was like, okay, again, this is clearly made for women. Again, whether on purpose or not. But that's the people who love it and still talk about it all the time. Like, this is such a big thing. And yet, you've made this movie that is this, like, grimdark nonsense that looks like a pile of trash. All about Tom Cruise and his nonsense. And also, Tom Cruise is, I, I believe, either the same age as or maybe one or two years older than Brendan Fraser. So it's not one of these situations where they've replaced him with a younger man. But at the same time... Next time you see a Tom Cruise movie, this is probably going to ruin the movie for you, but while you're watching the movie, consider how old the movie thinks Tom Cruise is, right? Because Tom Cruise in real life is, I guess, maybe like 52 or something like that. And he's clearly, his face has a certain, he, he's definitely, you know, he's, he's had some augmentation, which is perfectly normal in Hollywood. Um, and I also strongly suspect he's someone who gets quite a lot of CGI help in terms of visual rejuvenation in films. But... Without having seen The Mummy, 
In this film, he has an elderly mentor who's kind of his father figure, who is played by Russell Crowe, who is, I believe, like a year younger than him. I'm going to find these facts for you. Because Tom Cruise, I think the implication is that in most of his films, he is between 35 and 40 years old. And his love interest is always a kind of generically attractive, slim 30-something woman. But it is a Tom Cruise movie. And that's something there was quite a lot of media attention for at the time. Because the person who directed the Mummy remake is someone who's written and produced a lot of kind of shitty blockbusters. But this was the first time he directed something. And there was a very long Hollywood Reporter article all about how basically he hadn't been able to handle doing such a big kind of high budget CGI heavy action movie. And Tom Cruise had kind of come in and micromanaged. And it was really hard to tell exactly what happened because these things are always going to be like slightly biased by whoever's sharing the information but it was simultaneously a really inexperienced director making a project that was clearly creatively bankrupt and also Tom Cruise has a massive amount of influence so like he has loads of experience in film so maybe he can give loads of useful input but at the same time he had quotes in this article that were like yeah he came onto set and he tells exactly which lens to use in the cameras and it's like you don't need a director if he's doing that like just let him direct the movie (laughs) so Tom Cruise is 55 years old and Russell Crowe is 53. <laughs> also, apparently there was a line in this movie that someone, some critic, like, picked out where someone says something about Tom Cruise being such a young man. And he said that all the critics in the room during the press screening were like, um, <laughs> what? Okay. Like, it's just, I'm, this is off topic. But, I mean, what the fuck? Like, I'm reasonably sure the female lead is played by a sentient wisp of smoke. I mean, all I remember is that it's an attractive blonde woman who is maybe some kind of academic in the 25 million times I had to watch that trailer on Twitter and in cinemas and what have you. But um, that poor woman, because it's like probably got paid okay for it, but that is the worst of nothing rules. Totally thankless. Yeah. And it was interesting to watch the original because I, when we sort of put it on, I was like, I bet this is going to be very racist. And indeed, it was very racist, which is not something that you usually see in the Tumblr celebrations of The Mummy. I'm sure that this has been discussed. I'm like, obviously. Um, and I'm sure very intelligently, whatever, whatever. But I think that it's such a, an object of nostalgia for people because they would have seen it when they were, you know, 10 years old or something, that it's just not the kind of thing you necessarily want to talk about with something that you loved when you were a kid that much, which I totally understand. But I, anyway, had not personally seen that kind of discussion on, you know, Tumblr or whatever about this film. But, you know, having seen a movie before, I was pretty certain that this was going to be the situation. And uh, it was. It's quite racist. There are, like, two Egyptian characters, am I correct? Functionally. They have one white character playing a racially ambiguous, slimy sidekick yes. guy yeah, who's yeah, really yeah. untrustworthy. And then they have Omar Jalili playing an Egyptian jailer who comes along for treasure and is really treasure obsessed and greedy and then dies as a result of his own greed in a really gross way. And it's like, it's, this whole film is not great. Although they do have the character Ardeth Bey, who is the kind of really cool, sexy, goth, local kind of leader guy who guards the temple, who's just truly wonderful. I have seen The Mummy Returns, which I saw as a 12-year-old 
And I just remember both I and all of the kind of other non-normie girls being like, we all love this one. Because <laughs> uh, like the normie girls are obviously going to go for, for, for Brendan Fraser, but you want to have the one who's a goth and has like a scimitar. So he's great. Yeah. But yeah, this film is, um, yeah, it's racist basically in exactly the same way that its equivalents in the 1950s would be. And I think the fact that we didn't see that is definitely indicative of how beloved this film is. And then they squandered yes. that love on Tom Cruise. <laughs> Well, right. And so you're watching the old one, and this isn't to excuse it at all, because, you know, people shouldn't do this. But A, it was really sort of fascinating to watch the exact mistakes of the period it's um, sort of imitating, recreated in the late 90s. I was like, wow, you really just went all for it. You just did all of the exact things. But also, the things about it that are good are so good and charming that... For me, watching it, I was like, okay, there are problems with this movie, but this is still a really positive, charming experience. And a lot has changed in the past 20-ish years in Hollywood, although, of course, many things sadly have not. Um, And it makes sense that there would not have been any scrutiny of something like that at that time. Whereas something like the Tom Cruise one comes out, and again, I haven't seen it, so it's slightly unfair to talk about it, but it just seems like such a joyless enterprise. And this gets back to the thing that I'm always harping on about, for instance, with the latest King Arthur film, which I'm sure we've talked about on here, the tendency to just make everything grim and bleak and clearly not for women, which tends to mean taking out or minimizing the romance and it's just like why do you must you do this well and also making literally making it dark like the mummy the original one or the 1999 one i mean is so bright like it's so bright and vivid and fun and all the trailers for tom cruise one was like (laughs) i was like why why must we do this i don't understand i mean with the remake I mean, obviously they had a a different creative vision, which was a garbage one. Um, But also if they decided to do one in the style of the original 1999 Mummy and then corrected the mistakes, that would have been cool. But I just remembered something else about the new Mummy, which, spoiler alert, um, but the Mummy in the new one is played by Sofia Boutella, who is kind of currently a really big up and coming actress. She's had like side roles and stuff like Star Trek and everyone loves her universally. But in this film... She plays the mummy and by all accounts, she's pretty good at, you know, playing the mummy. But then at the end of the film, she gets killed off, which in itself, if this was a standalone movie, would be exactly what you expected. But as far as I can glean from what I've read, she sort of passes on her mummy powers or something to Tom Cruise, which means that he can continue on the franchise. And when I say the franchise, I don't actually mean the mummy franchise. I mean Universal Pictures Dark Universe franchise, where they're kind of glomming together all these monster movies. Um, And they had to change it. It was originally going to be called Universal Monsters. And I think the reason they changed it is because they started adding non-monster characters like the Phantom of the Opera and the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it's like, those are people with disabilities and illnesses. You can't call them monsters. So I guess that's why they changed it. Um, But this franchise sounds like the worst franchise in Hollywood. I will not bore you with the details. We can link to an article I wrote about it in the show notes. But basically, they have taken a whole bunch of classic vintage Hollywood monsters like the Invisible Man played by Johnny Depp 
Um, and they were all allegedly going to be getting standalone films like in the Mar- Marvel franchise before teaming up with the help of Russell Crowe as Jekyll and Hyde, who appeared in this movie. Um, and then defeat whatever. But they're all going to be action movies because I went through the creative teams for all of them. And um, obviously it's like 95% written and directed by white men. But like also they're just kind of journeyman adventure action movie people. So there's no indication there's going to be any kind of variety around them. And they're also not kind of leaning into the gothic horror aspects behind many of these characters. Um, There was already hints that this franchise is being cancelled before it happened. Like they already tried to make it once with the Dracula Untold movie where they tried to make action Dracula and it didn't go well. But yeah, they're they're making a lot of uh, creative mistakes here and they don't seem to understand <laughs> what they've done. If they'd made some kind of rom-com with Sofia Botella still as the mummy, people would have been hyped, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. And yet they didn't. Especially since Pirates of the Caribbean. People know that Pirates of the Caribbean was a success, right? I mean, it is famously a huge success. And then they made yes. 10 million too many more sequels, but... For some reason, the lessons were not uh, were not learned. Well, it's because they thought it was all Johnny Depp, as we have discovered, which is. I think it's definitely a lot of it, but like you can't make. Oh a yeah. Film about yeah. No, it's all very silly, and I guess no one has learned anything from DC's like disaster. I mean, I, I of... what's going wrong with DC? It seems like all of their films are doing really well. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I mean, they're making money, but like <laughs> the. And obviously, like, Wonder Woman was great, but to me, it seems like such an object lesson in you can't just announce that you're doing a massive cinematic universe franchise situation without doing any of the work first. Yeah. Or hiring people who have had the ideas, right? Like, you actually have to have people who are enthusiastic about it and have pitched you something. Like, Patty Jenkins wanted to do that for so long. It makes sense that she wound up being the person to do it and then was enthusiastic. Maybe they should just bring back Rachel Weisz for, like, another Mummy movie. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's... She'd probably be gay. Yeah, just frankly. be like, oh, she's uh, she's Tom Cruise's grandmother. <laughs> they should just bring back her and Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Because Brendan Fraser, as we know, is salty about... Uh, he is. He's been posting a lot of it on Instagram, kind of making fun of the new Mummy, Mummy movie, which is something you'd only do when you really don't care anymore. Well, he's just not famous enough for it to matter. And so he just doesn't yeah. shit. And he's still getting work, because we did check up on our son, Brendan Fraser. And oh my gosh. He, is, he has two prestige dramas coming out next year, one of which looks like a kind of a dumb adaptation of Three Days in the Condor. Other one is like a much more lofty drama, which is going to be directed by... um, Danny Boyle. Yeah, it's a much more lofty sounding drama that's directed by Danny Boyle. So his career is going fine. And uh, we also discovered that in his personal (laughs) life, he's good friends with Martha Stewart. They go horseback riding together. They paint. They do DIY. We need to know more. I was absolutely in hysterics. I wish I had been recording myself because it was too much okay here are some headlines when so you said you thought she had bought his horses when he had some money troubles so that he could still visit and them. i don't think so that's then, true no i okay, think they just so went we, horseback riding together right because i then googled brenda fraser martha stewart and what a gold mine let me let me read you some things from martha stewart.com halloween costumes with martha and brendan fraser the subtitle of which is Martha transforms Brendan Fraser into a mummy and finally reveals her Halloween costume. 
but wait, there's more. Then there is a post from BuzzFeed, Martha Stewart and Brendan Fraser went horseback riding together. Um, next page. Brendan Fraser makes homemade watercolor paint from Martha Stewart's YouTube channel. I believe there was something about sidewalk chalk that I can no longer find. I think he made some sidewalk chalk for Martha Stewart for her website. I really don't know the context of this, but he seems to appear often. There are many articles speculating about whether they are friends. Everyone is very confused. Oh, yes. How to make sidewalk chalk with Brendan Fraser from from her I love website. it. I love it. It's really, I think, very beautiful. A, a friendship I don't understand and don't care to, but it makes me happy <laughs> that it's in the world. Good job, Brendan. Enjoy your life. I hope your TV shows go well. You are superior to Tom Cruise, as any sensible person knows. So, A+. plus. I mean, wow, the internet has so much. (laughs) I think that's a great note to end this podcast about the mummy on Martha Stewart. I mean, uh, yeah, we enjoyed this film a lot. I feel like I'm more culturally educated now. So now all you need to do is see Indiana Jones. Yes. Which I feel like it's almost inevitable that you will enjoy because Indiana Jones is just wonderful. I mean, Harrison Ford is in it. So <laughs> really, like, what more do you need, honestly? Next week... Um, before we sign off, uh, I've actually guested on a couple of podcasts last week, one of which was the Fathoms Deep uh, Black Sales podcast, which came out on Monday, which is... I'm completely obsessed with black sales. I've been thinking about nothing else for the past three months. And Morgan has been surprisingly tolerant. (laughs) Yeah, if you follow me on social media, you're aware. But this is just absolutely the best show I've seen that isn't Hannibal. They're equal in my mind, but completely different. But you should listen to this podcast episode if you've seen the show. If not, do not listen because it is spoilers for all four seasons. And this is the most spoilery show. So please don't spoil yourselves. Just watch all of it. Um, yeah, the other podcast I guested on was uh, Ditch Diggers with Matt Wallace and Mer Lafferty. It's kind of a writing podcast. Usually they interview authors and comic book writers and that sort of thing. But they interviewed me about my geek culture journalism. So you can uh, go and find that as well. And we put links to both in the show notes. So listen to those two episodes. We will be back next week with a topic to be determined. Thank you, as always, for listening. And Again, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.